What is the riddle of the eagles in Ezekiel 17 all about? Are we bound to the promises we make to everyone, even people who seek our harm? Also, I have a few thoughts to share on the Asbury revival going on in Kentucky, including an eyewitness testimony. Make sure you stick around for that and a lot more today on the Cross References Podcast. Cross-references podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a new Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor, and I live in a country controlled by elephants and donkeys. Every week, these elephants and donkeys climb up on a hill and make decisions about how I'm supposed to live my life. There's this one donkey who lives in a white house, and he gets to sign off on what all the other animals decide each day, even though he doesn't usually know what day it is. The donkeys and the elephants have the ability to send out messages through little blue birds that communicate with tweets. The elephants and the donkeys are supposed to spend their days improving the economy of the animal kingdom, finding practical solutions to everyday problems, and shooting down Chinese spy balloons. But instead, the donkeys and the elephants were too preoccupied with their little blue birds to ever do anything productive. Now, when I say that, if you're from the same country I'm from, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. I've painted a picture and I've used symbols and metaphors here. And I use that picture to communicate how I feel about a group of people over in Washington, DC. But just imagine for a minute if I told that story to somebody in Afghanistan or Zimbabwe or Brazil, well, they'd be as confused as can be by my story because those symbols would carry no meaning to them. And if you're listening today, and if you're not an American, like me, you probably think I've lost my mind, but that's because you'd have to understand some of the intricacies of my culture in order to pick up on all the details in that little story right there. And and that's the problem that we have as we read Ezekiel 17. We're familiar in America with the political cartoons, and they depict things like elephants versus donkeys, But just imagine for a minute trying to read and discern the meaning of a political cartoon from another country. Now imagine trying to understand the political cartoon of a foreign country from thousands of years ago. That would be so far removed from our own experience, like we couldn't even begin to grasp the the meaning behind one without having a little bit of help. And so that's what we're going to do today. Ezekiel 17 is actually kind of a political cartoon. And in order to understand it, This podcast is here to help. So put your little bluebirds away, grab a Bible, and turn there as we begin today's study. A parable, a metaphor, or a riddle? That is the etymological debate about this chapter. And I think the best term that could describe it is actually riddle. This is kind of splitting hairs. You know, it doesn't ultimately matter. Um, But this chapter is going to be similar to a parable because it has lots of symbols and they mean something else. But it's also got this mysterious element to it. And that's why some commentators, they say it could be better described as a riddle. Um, Chapter 16, that was the parable of the adulterous woman. But I would say chapter 17 of Ezekiel, that's the riddle of the eagles. And let's get into it. The way I want to teach this one, I actually, I want to start by reading the verses and just let them paint the picture they're trying to paint. And then I'll explain the historical context. Okay, so I'm going to read a whole set of verses. I'm going to try to give the entire riddle. And then I'm going to explain what's going on at this moment in Israel's history. And I'll explain where those things correspond to elements of this riddle as we go through that. Okay, and the main thing I'll tell you before we begin, this is this is a prophecy about Zedekiah. He was the king of Israel in its last days right here before Babylon took it over. So I'm, I'm going to read the first eight verses here, okay? And, you know, it's, if you don't keep up with everything I'm saying, <laughs> don't feel bad about that. It's kind of hard to visualize this stuff. It is for me whenever I read a story like this in the Bible, and it's just kind of a painting a, you know, a humorous or, or bizarre picture. It's kind of hard to visualize this stuff sometimes. So, um, but anyway... We'll, we'll give it our best go, and then if you have some trouble keeping up with it, I'll explain it all after I read it. 
So Ezekiel 17, starting at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, propound a riddle, and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Say, thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. Then he took of the seed of the land and planted it in in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig and it sprouted and became a low spreading vine and its branches turned toward him and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out bows. And there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. Okay, so that was the first eight verses. That was the whole riddle, really. And it's a lot to unpack, okay? Here's the high points of this riddle. Or like, here's, here's the main points you got to remember. An eagle took the top of a tree and he carried it off to another land. Then it came back and it planted a new tree. And this new tree grew like a vine, okay? Another eagle comes flying by. The vine likes this new eagle better than the old eagle. He tries to get the attention of this new eagle. That's really the main points of what you need to know, okay? And it's it's a little weird kind of story that a vine's, you know, trying to get an eagle's attention. That's a little weird, but... The meaning of all this symbolism, it's actually not supposed to be immediately obvious. Um, It's supposed to be kind of a silly story, and it gets people's attention. It gets them to start asking questions. So let's talk about the historical context now. Babylon was this country, okay? At this point in Israel's history, they're the, the scary bad guys who are right on the borders. They're invading. They're conquering Israel. It, it was a long process. It, it wasn't just something that happened in a day. It went on for years. Long period of time. The first invasion was in 605 BC. And at this first invasion, King Nebuchadnezzar kidnapped the king of Israel, and that was King Jehoiakim. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiakim away. He kept him as a slave in Babylon. And then in his place, Nebuchadnezzar installed a new king named Zedekiah. So that's what's represented in this story where this eagle comes in and he takes off the top of the tree. The first eagle in this riddle, it's King Nebuchadnezzar. And the tree is the nation of Israel. So the eagle flew in, he removed the top of the tree, and he carried it off to another city. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did with Israel's king, Jehoiakim. He carried him off to the city of Babylon. He wiped away the leadership of Israel. And then in his place, Nebuchadnezzar put this weaselly guy in charge named Zedekiah. He said, Zedekiah, I'm going to let you run the show. And so in this riddle, Zedekiah is the seed that Nebuchadnezzar, the eagle, that he planted as he was doing all this. Okay? And it didn't just say he planted it. It made the detail here that he planted in fertile soil. So that means Nebuchadnezzar had set Zedekiah up for success. Like, he may have invaded Israel, but he, he actually gave Zedekiah a pretty good deal through all this thing. He entered into an agreement or a treaty with Zedekiah. He said, he said, basically, if I put you in charge, I want you to do what I say. So this was the agreement that Zedekiah made with Nebuchadnezzar. But unfortunately, Zedekiah broke his agreement. He broke his word. He tried to stab Nebuchadnezzar in the back. He, he looked at all the power and the strength of Egypt, and Zedekiah sought an alliance with them instead. He said to Egypt, you know, he, he said to Egypt, basically, Nebuchadnezzar is probably going to try to conquer you. So how about we team up and we'll try to overthrow him? And that'll get him off of both of our backs. So in the riddle that we were reading earlier, that's represented by the appearance of a second eagle. Egypt is that second eagle. Zedekiah was the seed that grew into a vine on the ground, but it said he grew his vine toward the second eagle. Okay, He He wanted the help from Egypt. So to the listeners of this riddle, they're probably wondering, like, and maybe they're wondering this, you know, I don't know exactly what they were thinking of all of it, but they're probably supposed to wonder why is the vine rejecting the first eagle that had taken care of it so well and planted it in this fertile soil at meaning Nebuchadnezzar gave Zedekiah a pretty good deal here, put him in charge, made him king. 
and said, just do what I tell you and, you know, you can be the big, the big guy in charge. Well, anyway, this vine that Nebuchadnezzar planted starts growing toward the other eagle, the Egyptian one. And so the people listening are probably wondering, why is this vine so ungrateful to the first eagle? Okay, if they weren't wondering that, well, God makes it plain in the next few verses because he poses these questions to the audience. Verse 9, say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither? It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it from its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it? Wither away on the bed where it sprouted. So God's posing all these questions. He's trying to say, this vine is going to dry up and die. It was planted in a fertile area where it would thrive. And now it's growing away from the safe zone. It's growing toward danger. It's going to be fruitless. It's going to wither and die. And this metaphor is implying that the vine is hurting itself and that it's basically sealing its own fate. And this refers to Zedekiah himself, but also it's going to impact the nation at large because as the leader fails, the country is also going to follow him into oblivion. So now God is going to explain this riddle in his own words. And as we read God's description of what this riddle was all about, his point's going to become clear. It's not just a story about something that happened. There is one particular element of this whole situation that really got under God's skin. And so God has a moral lesson he wants to, to, to teach us. He wants us to learn this as we read about this historical situation, okay? So we're not just getting a history lesson today. This is like kind of a fable. It's, it's about doing the right thing. So Ezekiel 17, verses 11 through 15. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them to Babylon. And he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant that it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? So right here, God is explaining everything that I just told you before, uh, but I wanted to explain it, you know, I wanted to explain it all earlier before we got too far away from the eagles and the vine verses. And I don't have much to add to that. You know, the key word in the verses we just read, it was verse 13, covenant. The verse said, he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him. So Nebuchadnezzar had made a covenant with Zedekiah. And if you want to hear about where that covenant was made, um, we have a cross-reference for that. It's in 2 Chronicles 36, 16. It says there, talking about Zedekiah, he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. So Nebuchadnezzar made a covenant with, with uh, Zedekiah, and he forced him to swear to this agreement by swearing by God. Now, we don't know the exact details of the agreement. <laughs> there is obviously an understanding. You're not going to turn around and rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. Like, that was apparently part of the deal. God takes this covenant seriously. And Zedekiah broke it so he could pursue a relationship with Egypt. And so, as God phrased the questions here, God said he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and a large army. And that's why Zedekiah was willing to stab Nebuchadnezzar in the back. He thought he could escape since Egypt had all this mil military power. He thought he could fight back. But Zedekiah wasn't just up against the kingdom of Babylon. He was up against the wrath and judgment of God. Because God was letting the Babylonians roll in here as part of a judgment on Jerusalem. So this doesn't work out so well for Zedekiah. Um, to keep reading here in chapter 17, it says in verse 16, As I live, declares the Lord God, Surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company will not help him in war when mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives. He despised the oath in, bringing, in breaking the covenant, and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. And if you remember from chapter... Uh, now I'm trying I'm blanking on where it was. It was around chapter 12 where 
Ezekiel was told to dig dig a hole through his house and, and go out through the hole of his house. And so that was, tw- that was like chapter 12, 13, somewhere in there. Um, that, that though, I go into what happened to Zedekiah. It was a nasty conclusion to his story. And we already talked about that back in that, in that lesson. So um, anyway, it was wrong for Zedekiah to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And that's what God is saying right here. And if you think about it from Zedekiah's point of view, it seems pretty justifiable that he would stab Nebuchadnezzar in the back. Um, Babylon was the bad guys, <laughs> so it seems like they're the you know they're the villains of the whole story. Israel's the good guys. Babylon's the bad guys. Babylonians are the invading army. That's not right. It's not right to just go into someone's country and kill a bunch of people and take control. So Babylon's the aggressors. Why would it be wrong to betray them? But in spite of all that, God still says. It's not okay. Like, maybe they are the bad guys, but you made a covenant with them, Zedekiah. And so God says, I expect you to honor that covenant. Well, that shows how seriously God takes covenants. Even if you make a covenant with the bad guy, you are still responsible to keep your word and and not betray them. Plus, if, if you read the whole book of Ezekiel, it's obvious that, you know, Israel is really more of the bad guys. <laughs> just, you know, just because Babylon is doing stuff that's wrong, that doesn't mean that Israel's just a bunch of angels just because they're the victim. This prophecy is not about Babylon invading and, you know, gee whiz, how terrible of them to do that. The prophecy here is about Babylon invaded, but it's still wrong for Zedekiah to stab them in the back. And that's the point of this whole riddle. That's like what it's all been building up to. Okay, that's what brings us to maybe the climax of this chapter, it's the word therefore here in verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. I will spread my net over him and he shall be taken in my snare and I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there for the treachery he has committed against me. And all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword, and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind, and you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken. And as we read earlier in Second Chronicles, Zedekiah had sworn by God's name, and now he's breaking that oath. So God says it was my covenant that he broke. Even though Zedekiah was breaking it to fight, to fight the bad guys, it was still wrong for him to break his word. This offends God to break the promise that he had made to the bad guys. And I know I'm speaking in kind of juvenile terms here when I say the good guys and the bad guys. It's kind of like um, sometimes I'm watching a superhero show with my four-year-old and he'll ask me, you know, he's like, what's going on? And I'll divide it up into just describing the good guys and the bad guys. Okay. He loves Spider-Man cartoons. Spider-Man's the good guy. Green Goblin is the bad guy. Or if we're watching Star Wars, there's the good guy robots and the bad guy robots. Sometimes the good guys put on the bad guy's clothes and they pretend to be bad guys to sneak around the Death Star. And you know what? All that makes sense to his four-year-old mind because it's a binary way of thinking, but this comes very simple to the human mind. There are good guys and there are bad guys. And the problem is we adults, we have a tendency to think, like four-year-olds, we have a tendency to think in those binary terms too. We like to divide the world up into good guys and bad guys. And we always think that we're the good guys, right? We always think that our way is right. And anybody who gets in our way, well, they're a bad guy. They aren't right. They can't be right because they're not letting me do what I want to do. And that's what Zedekiah is doing. He thinks he's justified in breaking this covenant because he's a good guy, because he's an Israelite, right? He's one of God's chosen people. And so, since Babylon are the bad guys, he thinks it's okay to screw them over. But that's not how God sees it. I mean, first of all, Zedekiah is not a good guy. Just because he was a Jew, his nationality does not make him good. doesn't matter what his skin color is. He's just not a good person. This isn't a story of good guys versus bad guys. (laughs) Everyone's just bad in this story. And yet, despite all that, God still sees our word as binding, you know, even, even if we make a promise to the villain, to the bad guy, someone who we thought was on our side, and later it seems that they're out to do us harm, okay? Someone, someone betrays you. Someone is doing bad by you. 
Despite all that, if you make an oath, God expects you to carry it out. This is a matter of integrity. And I would say that's like our word for the week. Okay, even if it, you know, that word doesn't appear in this chapter, but it's this idea, integrity, that you will keep your word, no matter who you make it to, no matter how the circumstances change. Well, when I said that, you know, the economy was like this or blah, blah, blah. No, you keep your word no matter what's going on around you. Because who you make the promise to doesn't change who you are. And no matter what changes about your situation or no matter what new opportunities arise, you are supposed to be the same person. Which means what you say or what you said on the outside, that is supposed to reflect who you are on the inside. That's what integrity means. It's the quality of being a whole person. Okay, just the same person. Not double-minded, not two-faced, not leading a double life. You are one person. If you're a math person, okay, maybe you're familiar with the term integer. That's a word, it, it means a whole number. Not, it means not a partial number, not 1.5, not five and three-fourths, just a one, a two, a three, a whole number, okay? That's an integer. It's a number that is whole. It's the same root word for integrity. A whole number, a whole person. Not, not acting one way in one place and another way in another place. Not acting one way in church and another way at work or with your friends. It's being the same wherever you are. And a lot of people, they can make big claims of you know what they're going to do. They engage in agreements. They go to business transactions. They go to all that kind of stuff. And yet, sometimes people can talk a big talk, and then when the rubber meets the road, suddenly they, they decide they don't want to follow through. We, we've experienced that before, right? When it gets too hard and people drop out, they disappear. Like they do 10% of what they promised they would do, and then they're gone. I used to work for a few different school newspapers. Um, I was actually editors on, on those papers, and... Editor of a college paper, I mean, that is serious work. Um, it's, it's practically having a job. We'd have our staff meetings each week. And uh, everybody would throw out ideas. And they'd update us on what they were working on. You know, we'd assign tasks. Some people would volunteer. They'd say, hey, I'll do one article this week. Or, or this month. One of them I worked on was just a monthly paper. And so they'd volunteer to do their one thing. And then they would do that one thing. And you know what? As far as I was concerned... I'm grateful for that. <laughs> it was like, maybe it was just one thing, but if they followed through on the one thing they said they would do, I was happy with that. But then there's also idea people who would come in, people who were just full of great ideas. And they'd rattle off, they'd rattle off like four or five things that they said they were going to do. They'd get you all excited. You're like, wow, these are, these are some great ideas. And, and you'd be like, go for it. You know, and, and off they'd go. And then you don't see them for three weeks. And finally they show up again and, and they haven't done any of the stuff they were talking about. They had all these great ideas, but they didn't follow through on any of it. And you know, it doesn't matter how great your ideas are. If you're not going to do what you said you would do, give me one great idea and just do that one thing. That's all I wanted. You know, cause, cause for those of us on the editorial staff, like we had to fill up pages of the newspaper. We had to have articles and pictures we need that content because we have to fill those holes in the newspaper. And, you know, if, if we relied on you and you weren't faithful, that would put us in a very hard spot as we're trying to get the paper out and it doesn't have all the content it was supposed to. So all this, all this is saying it's an integrity issue. You need to have integrity. You need to do what you say you will do. Even when it's difficult, even if the circumstances change, you know, even when the person that you made the deal with in the first place, when it seems that they are the bad guy. Well, what we learn from Ezekiel 17 is, is that God still wants us to keep our word. I heard this story, a guy named Charles Moore. He was a 59-year-old homeless man in Detroit. And he was rummaging around in the trash one day, and he found $21,000 in U.S. savings bonds. And he knew what they were because um, he used to have savings bonds. And so he knew he like he recognized what they were. And so he was had a decision to make in that moment as he found these things. He thought, should I keep them or should I go try to turn them in to find the rightful owner? Now, if you're listening to this, you might think, well, that's an easy decision. 
I know what I would do. I'd turn him into the police because that'd be the right thing to do, right? But just imagine for a minute that you're Charles Monroe. You're homeless. You don't have enough food to feed yourself. You're literally digging around in the trash trying to find food for your next meal. And now you come across all this money. This actually would be a pretty hard decision of whether you just keep it or, or turn it into the rightful owner. So Charles Moore, he made the right decision. He turned it into the police. And the person who had thrown them away, it was this old lady. Her husband had recently died. She'd thrown them away. She didn't even know what they were. So Moore could have just kept them and she never would have known the difference. She never would have missed them. So he did this for her and she gave him a reward. She gave him $100. (laughs) She gave him $100 after he gave her $21,000 basically. So, you know, materially, it was not worth it. It wasn't a good deal for him. In a, material, in a material sense. But Charles Moore said that he grew up going to church and he believed it was more important to do the right thing than it was to do the easy thing. And that's a, that's a great example for us. Um, Proverbs 19, it says it's better to be a poor man than a perjurer. That means a, a liar, okay? And I also like what it says in Psalms 15. I think of these verses a lot. It says in verse 1, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks truth from their heart. And if you skip down a few verses, it says, who keeps an oath even when it hurts. That verse, I think about that a lot. The version I think I learned it, it said, who swears to an oath even to his own hurt, something like that. Who keeps an oath even when it hurts. It means this is going to cost me something to do the right thing, to have integrity, to do what I said. I will keep this oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, is what the verse says. That, you know, that that means when it gets harder than you thought it would be to keep your word, when or when it's going to cost you something to do what you said you would do. Sometimes having integrity hurts because you have to give up something that you wanted like really, really bad. It can hurt sometimes to keep a promise, even whenever you regret making that promise later. Or to stick with something when it becomes harder than you thought it would be. Or to to break the temptation to behave one way whenever you're alone or at school or at work than to be the same person you are at home. You know, there's going to be a lot of times that you have a difficult decision. And it's not because you have two good options. It's because you have to choose between doing the right thing and getting a small reward for it or doing the wrong thing and getting a huge reward for it. Um, That can be a hard decision, but it can also be a very easy decision because you know what the right thing is. And I believe if you choose the right thing, God is going to honor and reward you for that. I was telling that story about Charles Moore earlier. I didn't get to the end. Charles Moore, he later at his age in life, he started a small computer repair business and became quite wealthy. So he made a, he ended up making a lot more than $21,000 a year. <laughs> and uh, I believe it's because God blesses the difficult but right decision. And in case you haven't noticed, uh, we still have a few verses left in this chapter. Let's take a short break. I'm going to grab a drink, uh, and then I'm going to relate a few notes about future plans. I want to I comment on a few things from current events, and then we're going to get back into this chapter and wrap it all up. Do me a favor and make sure that you're subscribed if you haven't already. Um, Because I I say that because most of our listeners are actually not subscribed to the podcast. I don't really know how that works, but I'm glad you're here. I just want to keep you here. So um, make sure you've clicked subscribe or follow on like whatever platform you're on. And and please do that before you go today. And if you have a question on this chapter, then leave a comment or shoot us an email. It's at crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. That's also in the show notes, and I'd just be happy to take questions or recommendations on what you'd like to hear me tackle in the future. And I have a few ideas that I'm batting around for the next few months on the podcast, uh, things I want to get into. Not sure yet which one I'll get into first. Um, I really want to do a research project on the idea of Christian niceness 
And I want to present like my findings from that to you. So I want to do that. I still want to do a deep dive into this idea of transgenderism versus the Bible, because that's become such a big cultural issue in the past few years. And, um, and I'd like to do a lesson on fasting. I'd like to do, to do one on, on what it means to be blessable. And so these are all things that I'm working on. I have a few follow-up lessons on the rapture. Like, I feel like I've covered the rapture to death the past few months. And yet those episodes where I talk about the rapture, they, they keep becoming some of the most popular episodes I've done. So I, I want to give you also more of what you want. So if you want some rapture talk, I mean, I have a few more things to say about the rapture. So um, I, I like to do an episode dissecting the differences in the rapture and the second coming. So keep your eyes peeled for, or your ears tuned to look for episodes on all those things in the months ahead. And um, one thing I'd like to just share a few comments on is the Asbury revival that's taking place at a Christian college in Kentucky. Um, it's called like Asbury University, I think, in Wilmore, Kentucky. And so I guess a few nights back, the students were gathered for just like a regular worship service uh, a few weeks back. And by the time it got over, nobody wanted to leave. Like they just kept worshiping. And so the next night they had church again and then did it again the next night and the next night. And it hasn't stopped. Every night since, it has just kept going. And I've been seeing a lot of feedback about this on social media, especially in Twitter, where, um, you know, if you get in Twitter, you get in these little pockets, these com these communities inside of Twitter. Uh, one of them where I like find a lot of commonality is with this group that's called the Theo Bros on Twitter. That's where I seem to interact with people the most. Um, sometimes in agreement, sometimes in disagreement. Uh, like most of the Theo Bros are quite a bit different from me because uh, like theologically I'm Pentecostal and they tend to be Baptist, Calvinistic. And so I differ from them theologically in a lot of ways. But, you know, regardless of that, I see them as allies in the faith and in the, in the culture wars where we're, we're all fighting the same fight over there on Twitter most of the time anyway. Um, and so I say this because they've seemed quite down on the Asbury revival. Um, some people in, in the evangelical world are just really down on it for various reasons. And so I just want to respond to that by sharing just a few comments on the Asbury revival, my opinion on it. And my opinion on it is that you don't have to have an opinion on the Asbury revival. <laughs> like I just want to say to people, it's okay to kind of just mind your own business and just do your own church thing. 99% of the people talking about the Asbury revival on Twitter are not actually there. There are some people who are claiming to be there and they're actually lying. Uh, there's some people who are spreading misinformation about it on social media. And so it's hard to know who to trust as far as getting news out about the Asbury revival. And I just want to say to everybody, you don't have to just believe or comment on every single news report that comes out of it all. You can just sit this one out if you want. It's okay. Like if I hear that a revival is going on in another state, I don't necessarily feel like I need to pronounce some kind of judgment on whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, like a good revival or a bad revival. How am I supposed to know whenever I'm not even there? And so it's, I just say all this because it's kind of weird to me that there's so many people on Twitter, they have these strong opinions on it, that, and yet they have no personal experience with it. They're just going off of the same information I'm seeing on Twitter. Like, I don't feel this need to formulate an opinion about it one way or another. Just like, <laughs> it doesn't have anything to do with me directly. If it, they're having a revival, I think it's great. I don't see why I need to try to investigate it from hundreds of miles away. So I'm not saying you can only give positive opinions on it, okay? I'm not saying that even. I, it's just some of the negative opinions that I'm seeing from people about the Asbury revival, they're just as dumb as can be. <laughs> no offense, but they just are. Like, the, I guess some guy named Todd Bentley... I don't even know who he is, okay? Apparently, this guy drove several states to attend this revival and see what it was all about, okay? I don't know or care who Todd Bentley is, but there's a bunch of people on Twitter who are just saying, well, if Todd Bentley likes it, that must prove this is a bad thing. And I'm like, that's that's a dumb way of thinking. You know, how do you, it's, that's not how you judge whether something is right or wrong, okay? Again, it, Todd Bentley... Don't know who he is. Let's say for the sake of argument that he is a false teacher or something, okay? 
I'm not claiming he is. I'm just saying, let, for the sake of argument, let's just say he is. Just because he goes there, does that necessarily discredit a, a move of the Holy Spirit just because Todd Bentley shows up? Like, is he that powerful? <laughs> is that the power you want to give him? You know, if you don't like him, if you think he's some kind of heretic or something, why would you let him tell you what a, re- what a real revival is? That just seems silly. You know, if this was a legitimate move of God, wouldn't the devil be trying to do anything he could to discredit it? Like, obviously, that's what would happen if this was a real move of God. So, And I'm not claiming that's what's happening. I'm just saying you shouldn't just use the excuse that one guy shows up and his mere presence, you know, and he didn't have anything to do with the revival kicking off or anything like that. He shows up days later. His mere presence should not be the barometer of what you consider an actual revival. That's just not a very smart way of thinking. And, and, and then another thing that's being debated a lot is the concept of what a revival is. Many people are just saying, you know, it's not a real revival if this doesn't happen. It's not a real revival if that doesn't happen. Um, you know, if people aren't getting saved every single night. It's not real revival if it doesn't spread across the land. You know, the, people are saying all this stuff. And, and I'm, the, you know, I'm usually the first one to say, yeah, it's important that we define our terms, okay? But the word revival, is, this is not a word that appears in the Bible. It's not something defined by God in Scripture. You can kind of define it however you want to. Um, it's, what I'm saying is this is a vocabulary debate. doesn't mean it's a meaningless debate. But I'm saying, you know, that means if there's a group of people in another state and they seem desperate enough for God that they just want to have church service every night for like three weeks in a row, can we at least agree that that's just a good thing? Like maybe you want to call it a revival, maybe you don't. Either way, can we just be happy about that? (laughs) Like, couldn't we just be celebrating that instead of folding our arms and complaining about whether it fits the criteria to be the definition of a revival. Can't can we just be happy about the good things that are happening? Um, so I'm not saying you have to have an opinion one way or another. I'm just saying some of these reasons people are throwing out to condemn it and say it's like a move of the devil, it's like a deception, they're just so dumb. Like the, Okay, here's another thing. There's been reports coming out um, that there's healings that are happening at the revival reports of miracles, reports of demons being cast out. Um, and when those reports, like, and when I say reports, what I mean is someone goes out on Twitter and says this. I'm not saying the schools put out a statement claiming this. I'm not saying, you know, anything. I'm saying like just random people are saying this on Twitter who may or may not actually be there. And I'm seeing a lot of the, you know, the Theo bros, which I like these people. They're my people, I thought. But anyway, they're they're just scoffing at this on Twitter. They're like, well, they say healings are, be- are happening. Demons are being cast out. That just proves that it's false. And I'm like, what what do you people have about, what do you have against casting out demons? <laughs> like, you all talk all the time about how you love the Bible. That's why I hang out with you all on Twitter. I thought we all love the Bible. They're always talking about sola scriptura. Demons are in the Bible, guys. <laughs> like I'm, I'm not sure what Bible you've been reading. The Bible has demons in it. Jesus cast them out of people. The disciples cast them out of people. Paul cast them out of people. Jesus said that his followers were going to cast out demons. I'm just not sure what the Theobros have against this concept of casting out demons. Like, Do, do they think that the demons just all went away after the apostles left or something? Like, What, what do they think? What are you supposed to do with demons if you don't cast them out? I, you know, I, that's a, I guess that's a question. If you got an opinion on that, I would invite you to reach out to me and let's talk about it here on the podcast. Like there's certain subjects like, and I'm not saying I'm some expert. I'm, you know, I, I, you'd call it a debate. I really just want to question someone who like doesn't believe in demons, but says they believe the Bible, but says they don't believe in demons. Like I would really like to talk to you about that. There's certain subjects that I just don't understand where people are coming from, like infant baptism. You know, when when believers say they want to baptize children or do baptism by sprinkling, I'm just like, where do you see that in the Bible? You know, I would just want to have a conversation about that because I don't see biblical support for it. And I'm not, I'm not some expert who can just like de- 
debate you and convince you otherwise, most likely. I just would like to ask questions about about some things um, that Christians believe. So anyway, I'm getting a little off topic, but um, I'm not saying any demons were cast out at this revival. That's not my point, okay? My point is we shouldn't just take a comment that someone said on Twitter and use that to form our whole opinion on the whole thing based on that, because that's just dumb. That's a dumb way to make determinations about something. Is, you know, we don't even know who these people are on Twitter who are saying that. Are they students at the school? Are they lying about being students at the school? We don't know. People on Twitter can basically be anonymous or make fake accounts with if they want. People lie. There are some claims being made that there's LGBT students that are leading worship at the event. Again, this is just random claims. Random people on Twitter. Okay? If you've been listening to this podcast very long, you, you know what I think about that. I have no idea if it's true. And you don't either. Okay? We shouldn't base our whole opinion of Asbury based on what some random person on Twitter tweeted. That's just dumb. So just wait and see. It's okay to be skeptical. But I just don't think we should condemn the whole event or try to say it's not of God because of some hearsay that people shared on social media. I'm okay with being skeptical. I'm a very skeptical person myself. Like my whole position on the Asbury revival has been, let's just wait and see. Let's just wait and see what the fruit is. Because there's no reason for me to just jump the gun on making some determination about something that's going on in another state that has no direct bearing on my life. Okay? I mean, I would say this, I hope a revival's going on. Like, whether one actually is or not, I hope that there's a great move of God going on over there. I, I at least hope it's real. But again, I have not been there, so my opinion doesn't matter. Most of the people talking about this on social media haven't been there either. So their opinion doesn't mean anything either. <laughs> it's, it's, here's what I keep thinking about lately. It's okay not to have an opinion about something. I think this is one of the downsides of social media. Like, we have this platform that now we can use it to send out our opinions to hundreds of people. And so for some reason, since we can do that, we think it means that our opinion just matters a whole bunch. Just because, you know, we can send it out to so many people that we try to have an opinion about everything. I want to be like, guys, just remember, it's okay not to have opinions about every single thing that happens. Okay? So, sorry if that makes you mad. <laughs> but we don't have to... It's okay to not have opinions about stuff. If you haven't eaten at a certain restaurant, I don't care what you think about it. If you haven't seen that movie that came out, I don't care what you think about Avatar 2. If you haven't seen it, I don't, I don't need to hear your review. If you haven't had E. coli, don't tell me that I can't eat raw cookie dough. You just don't want me to have any fun, and I don't care what you think. And if you haven't been to Asbury, or if you're just repeating something that you heard someone on Facebook or Twitter say, I don't care. So I said all this, like I already had all this in my notes, and then literally last night, I met someone who just came from the Asbury Revival. Like it literally, so all that stuff I said, that was all like, I had put that in my notes and I just hadn't recorded the podcast. I had to go to this prayer meeting. So I went to this prayer meeting last night. I didn't have time. That's why my podcast is late this week. It's because um, I wasn't able to get stuff done yesterday like I wanted to. Anyway, so I go to this prayer meeting and uh, there's this guy out there. Um, he's from a local, he's from a town very close to, to me, but um, he's an evangelist. And he travels the country all the time sharing the gospel. And he had, he had actually just went, he just drove out to the Asbury Revival over in Wilmore, Kentucky, just because he wanted to see for himself what it was all about. And he didn't even actually get into the, the building where they were holding the revival. He said the cars were backed up for over two miles away from the school or like where the auditorium, wherever it is, like the chapel where they're having this. Okay. He couldn't even get in because there were so many people. But he said that they had set up screens outside. They set up speakers outside so people could watch and hear what was happening, what like what was going on in there. And so he shared this at the prayer meeting I was at. I actually recorded him, and I got his permission to share this. And so, I mean, he talked for like 30 minutes. I'm just going to share a, a little bit of it here. But um, his name is Aaron Williams. He has Aaron, Aaron, Aaron Williams Ministries. And so here's a clip of him talking about the Asbury Revival. 
Now, I had to preach for a while, so you just pull on my back end if I get your way in. Yeah, so a friend of mine called another evangelist out of North Carolina said, uh, do, would you like to meet up in Wilmore? And, it, you know, I've been watching it a bit and wanted to do that, so we did. We met up and uh, just really was taken back by the rolling hills, of the nice, the, really where it's at is just beautiful, first of all, as so I traveled in, and then well-kept facility seminary. And right away, I was trying to find a place to park, and uh, you just noticed the masses of people. You know, you could see that it really drawn some people. So we made our way that now. You could tell everybody was trying to get to this main chapel, but there were also adjacent structures that were full. And uh, they were estimating that night with everything full, there was still 1,800 people out, you know, outside that couldn't get in. Uh, I think the one word, as we were talking earlier, Mark, is reverent. It was very reverent. So, I, you know, most of my life done evangelism. So when you think of evangelism, maybe you think of a tent or a revival at your church or wherever it may be. But uh, the atmosphere was very reverent. You know, and the age group is very broad. Uh, of course, many of your students of revival and awakening, it definitely bore the markers of, you know, you've seen that draw of people internationally around the country, God drawing in. Um, the college age is involved, which, hey, when we're praying for our children and grandchildren, this is how God does it. This is how he sweeps in, you know, and so. I like that he says it was a reverent atmosphere. Um, I like hearing that. The, this was this guy speaking. He was a very solid, biblically-based believer. Okay, as I said, he's an evangelist, go, travels the country, shares the gospel. And, and his opinion on this, he said it was reverent. So again, I have not been to Asbury, so my opinion doesn't mean anything on it. But I'm more inclined to trust the word of somebody who actually was there. And, and like I said before, you don't have to listen to what I said on anything on this show. I think we should just wait and see. Let's see what the fruit is that comes of this revival. Um, but let, we don't have to just jump into a quick judgment of thumbs up or thumbs down on this thing. Okay, to, to quote a Jewish sage in the book of Acts, when the apostles were going out and they were sharing the gospel and the authorities were debating on whether they should do something to stop the apostles. I always I was thinking about the, the words of this wise Jewish man. He said, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. That was in Acts 5. I think his name was Gamaliel. Um, so I'd say this about a potential revival or whatever you want to call it. If you, whatever your definition is or whatever. If it's of man, it'll fail, but maybe it's of God. And think about it this way. I'm sure God has plans for whatever is going on over in Kentucky. And, and I'm sure the devil has plans as well. So if you aren't sure what to think about all of it, just, just pray that it's God's plans that prevail. All right, and uh, <laughs> after saying not to care about people's opinions, I want to give my opinion on something else now. Um I know I just said all this stuff about opinions don't matter, but I want to give my opinion on the He Gets Us Super Bowl commercial that just came out here recently because we just had the Super Bowl. And at the Super Bowl, there was another cultural moment for Christianity uh, where a commercial was shown for the He Gets Us campaign. And there's a number of Christians who are upset about this commercial because the, the He Gets Us campaign and the commercials they've been putting out they seem a little bit woke, a little bit progressive. And, and I would agree that they kind of are. They have that flavor to them. But I'm going to just give a little bit different take on this, okay? So, and, and let me back up a little bit. If you're not familiar with the He Gets Us campaign, these are usually banners and videos. They talk about how Jesus went through a lot of the same things that we go through. It'll emphasize things like being poor. The, the, like the tagline is always, He Gets Us, okay? It's talking about how Jesus can relate to our experiences, because you know he was he was God, but he became man, came to this earth, lived on this world as we do. And if you go to the He Gets Us website, it gives information about Jesus. It's based on what the Bible says. They'll try to connect you with the church. Um, I don't, I don't, I could not see anywhere that they give the gospel 
on their website. This is a complaint that a lot of people have about the He Gets Us campaign. They don't put the gospel on their website that I, that I could see. And I've heard other people say it's just not there. Um, the website is just, it's just very much there to answer questions, but it doesn't really push anything on you. Um, so when I first saw this campaign start coming out a few months back, um, sometime before Christmas, and I was not crazy about the whole thing. Uh, like they, you know, they'd have an ad and they would say, Jesus was a refugee, refugee too. Hashtag he gets us. And, you know, I could tell from these ads, they were kind of co-opting progressive buzzwords. Like I thought, okay, this is probably some progressive thing is I kind of wrote them off. You know, I just didn't, I didn't have a strong opinion about them because I didn't, I wasn't sure what their goal was. And so that was just kind of a turnoff for me. Um, but anyway, then their Super Bowl commercial came out. And in this commercial, it's like a bunch of pictures of people yelling at each other. Um, and I'm, I'm playing some of it here for you so you can hear what... Yeah, I mean, it's not very effective on a podcast because <laughs> you can't see it. Um, but in the commercial, it's like a lot of pictures of people and they're really angry with each other. Okay, they're like yelling at each other, getting in each other's faces. And then at the end, it says... Jesus loved the people we hate. He gets us, all of us. And the name of the ad is Love Your Enemies. And that's basically the message it's trying to convey. You know, Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Um, so showing pictures that are kind of familiar. You know, if you watch the news or if you if you live in a big city, you ever see activist events, people yelling at each other and all that. Uh, you know, it, it, it looks reflective of that. Um, and it says but that that statement is so powerful. Jesus loved the people we hate. And this ad really got under a lot of people's skin. And I find it kind of interesting that it did because, you know, I feel like it's actually a really good ad. Um, I think people are really mad about it because they're trying to figure out the agenda behind all of it. Um, if you look at this ad in a vacuum, you know, it's giving this very biblical message, something, something that I think we can all relate to. But... Um, you know, because all of us get mad at, at our the, the bad guys, like I was saying before. We get mad. We jump on our Twitters. We become keyboard warriors or, or activists, you know. and we, we forget sometimes to love the people who make us so angry. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like, I don't, I don't know the agenda behind this ad. But looking at the ad itself in a vacuum, I can't really argue with it. it and as far as it being a Super Bowl commercial... I'm kind of just glad that Jesus got a big flashy commercial at the most most watched televised event of the year. I think that's a good thing. I I heard it was the second most popular Super Bowl ad of the night. And like I don't even know what the first was, but you know, I feel like that's pretty good ratings for Jesus. So this about this whole thing of there's there's not really a clear agenda behind the ads and this gets a lot of people's antennas up, you know, of Christians and of non-Christians. <laughs> the politician who's so ridiculous all the time, AOC, she, she, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she tweeted this about the ad. She said, something tells me Jesus would not spend millions of dollars on Super Bowl ads to make fascism look benign. <laughs> like that was her take on it. <laughs> it cracked me up because the ad is called Love Your Enemies and she calls it fascism. <laughs> and so that, that's just a hot take if I ever heard one. And that's a good lesson for us. Don't ever listen to non-Christians give an analysis of, of Christianity because they have no idea what they're talking about. But but anyway, there's a lot of even Christians who are highly suspicious of this ad campaign because, um, like I said, it's been around for a few months and, and a lot of the banners that you see about them, they do have this kind of progressive flavor to them. So I just want to tell you what I think is going on. I think the ads are probably by conservative or traditional Christians, but they are meant to appeal to progressives. And what I mean is they deliberately use progressive lingo, um, as, ben as Ben Shapiro calls it, the, the woke vocabulary. They use woke language, but I don't think it's that they're like trying to make a woke Jesus. I think they're trying to get progressives' attention and spark an interest in Jesus you know, within them. And so maybe you say, well, why would they do that? Well, to think about it, guys, who needs Jesus more than progressives do? Like, who is farther away from God 
in biblical truth in America right now than the progressives. If you wanted to save this culture, who would be more important to reach than progressives? So I'd say this ad campaign, it's probably it's probably a good thing. It's probably got some good people behind it, good intentions. Maybe they're not always hitting the nail on the head with how they present, but I think they're trying to do a good thing. I don't think there's a bad agenda behind it. That's my opinion. You don't have to care about my opinion, okay? <laughs> I'm just giving you my thoughts after reflecting on this a while. Like, I think it's probably well-intentioned. But like I said about the other thing, we can wait and see. There's nothing wrong with that either. So, um, but man, I'd sure love to see something like this spark an interest in Jesus in people. And, um, and, and by the way, there's that comment I read earlier about, um, well, you know, would Jesus want us to spend all this money on a Super Bowl ad? Uh, shouldn't we have given that money to the poor? That, you know, that's what AOC suggested. I think it costs like $20 million. I, don't quote me on that. I don't know for sure, but I think that's something like that on what it costs for a Super Bowl ad. For, this was like a minute long. Here's what I would say about that. If they want to use $20 million to make a billboard for Jesus in front of half the country, that is their money. There's worse things you can do with your money. But the, but the comment that the money could have been given to the poor, it just cracks me up because it's literally what Judas said. It was like, didn't the woman break the bottle of perfume to anoint Jesus with it? John chapter 12, verse four, okay? But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And I love the comment it makes in the next verse. It says, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. <laughs> so, you know, some of these people who are like, well, did you have to spend that? Couldn't, wouldn't Jesus want you to give it to the poor? You know, it just kind of makes you want... I don't think you should go out and quote Judas. That's all I'm saying about that. I think it makes you look a little bit sus if you do that. Um, if other people want to use their money to worship Jesus or exalt and proclaim his name, I don't think it's our place to judge how they're spending their money. I'd, I'd say the spirit behind those types of comments is not the Holy Spirit. And they can spend their money how they want. If they want to promote Jesus with it, I'm not going to attack them over that, okay? Just, just my opinion. And you're entitled to your opinion. And I don't know how much your opinion is worth, but it's probably worth less than a Super Bowl commercial. Let's finish out the chapter and wrap up today's lesson. So Ezekiel 17, it actually reminds me of this one verse that I studied before in Jude. <laughs> There's this line in Jude that's so weird. God is talking, uh, that he's to saying that we should respect all places of authority, like respect and honor authority. And then Jude makes this comment, and really it's God saying it in the book of Jude. But it says, respect authority, even respect the devil's authority. That's such a weird thing to say. It's like one of the weirdest verses in the Bible, in my opinion. God's trying to, to tell us how seriously he takes it that we ought to respect authority. And, and to make that point, God goes to the most extreme position possible to tell us this. He says, even respect the authority and position of Satan. Now, that is about as extreme as it gets, but it shows you how extreme that God takes respect. And so in a similar way, like almost as extreme, God does a similar thing here in Ezekiel 17, that we should keep our commitments and keep our vows, that we do what we say we will do. And to make this point, God goes to the most extreme, one of the most extreme examples that you could imagine God says to Israel, keep your promises, even promises that you made to that evil, pagan, devil-worshipping Nebuchadnezzar. Now, for most of us, we'd probably say that since Nebuchadnezzar does, like, he does these crazy things, right? He throws people into fiery furnaces. So, it's probably okay to stab him in the back. It's probably okay to lie to his face, Right? Nebuchadnezzar, he builds statues to himself and he tries to make everybody worship him. He, he kidnaps kings and he turns their family into eunuchs 
He's one of the most prideful men to ever walk the earth. He's used as an example in scripture numerous times of what the Antichrist will be like. So, I mean, if it was going to be okay to stab anybody in the back, it would have to be Nebuchadnezzar, right? And yet, God says, keep your word. Even to someone like Nebuchadnezzar. Which means, I don't think we ever have an excuse to break our word just because of how someone else is acting. I mean, this is a wild statement. It's about as extreme of an example as you can find to make this point. But I think it shows how seriously God takes all this. So I really like this chapter. It had a very clear moral. It was presented in a unique and memorable way. It's, it's one of those things you just don't get in any other book of the Bible. Like, that's why we're studying this book. And I'm glad you're here for it. Um, this, I'm studying Ezekiel because I don't think it gets studied a lot. And we see really cool nuggets like this in here that you just don't find anywhere else. So as this chapter closes out, it does something else that's kind of unique for this book. It ends on a positive note. <laughs> that doesn't happen a lot in Ezekiel. It actually references Jesus here in the last three verses, which we have not read yet, but um, I'm going to read them now. So remember, in the, in the riddle that, we, that it gave us, the top of the tree represents a king, okay, a king of Israel. And so remember that as we read the end of the riddle here. Ezekiel 17, verses 21 through 24. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree, dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. So God says he will take a new sprig from Israel's tree, a new king, and plant him in a new place. And this new sprig will be planted high. It will grow into a mightier tree. It said all kinds of birds will rest there, not just Israel, so not just one nationality, but the birds of all nations. And God furthermore makes the comment that he's in charge of all the trees. So what's God talking about here? He's talking about Jesus. It's a messianic promise. God is going to plant a new leader in a new place and begin a new kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. And this kingdom is not just about one people group. It's for all people. Anybody can be part of God's kingdom. Notice where the sprig comes from. It comes from Israel's tree. It grew out of it just like previous kings. And, and, and that's what Jesus is. He's an Israelite. He's, he's a Jew. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's not just any Jew. He's part of the kingly line. He has ancestors that go all the way back to King David. So Jesus came from Israel. That's why he's, he's a king. He's at the top of this tree. But he also went beyond Israel. He started a, a new people. He inaugurated the kingdom of God. This is the new tree, which grew, and it housed birds of, of every kind, not just Jews. It had all birds. That's one of the messages of the New Testament, that salvation is not through one specific nation, but salvation is for all. And that's also a message of the Old Testament. Uh, the, the Jewish people didn't quite get it. <laughs> Jesus had to explain this to them in the New Testament, that he was providing salvation for everybody everywhere, not just the Jews. It was for all. It said he was planted on a mountain, and that, that could be a reference to Mount uh, Zion, where Jesus will rule in the millennial kingdom. And that's probably what it means, but I think another way to look at it, another interpretation, is that Jesus was also planted on Mount Calvary. He was planted there on a cross. And it was through that, through his death, that he made this kingdom available for all, for everybody everywhere. One more thing I want to point out. Who plants this sprig? God did. 
The chapter ended by saying, I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree, dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken and I will do it. God is in control. If there is one thing I have learned in the past year, it's that God is in control of it all. I can't do anything, it's just him. The the more it looks like things are spinning out of control, the more surprised you're just gonna be when you see what he does. No matter what it looks like to your eyes or to your emotions, God is in control of your life. He hasn't forgotten you. Your destiny is not ultimately controlled by the elephants or the donkeys. He has got the whole world in his hands. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you that I don't want to hear your opinion about raw cookie dough.